Well, good evening, everyone. We having a good day so far? Yeah. Did, did Kevin wear y'all out too much outside? Are y'all y'all just dead now? No. What what did y'all play out there today? Football and kickball. Volleyball. Okay. No. Always volleyball. <laughs> well, we are going to be in Matthew 27. That's where we're going to open God's word today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, Matthew 27. And we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 44. And as you get there, I want you all to think about what an ironic world we live in. And if that's a new word for you, irony, by its modern definition at least, is an outcome of events contrary to what you would expect to happen. So, for example, there once was a man who drowned in a pool party put on by a city to celebrate one year with no drownings in their pool with 100 lifeguards in attendance. Or uh, the man who created the glider was killed by his own invention after boasting that it was the most safe way to travel, even safer than traveling by foot. In 1974, the U.S. government had to recall a lapel pin promoting toy safely because it had been made with lead paint. Its edges were too sharp, and the clips on the lapel had a tendency of breaking off, becoming a choking hazard. And in 1893, during the Australian gold rush, large amounts of gold were mistakenly identified as fool's gold. And they used this precious material as filling for building materials and street repair. Of course, once they realized their mistake, there was a second gold rush, and their streets had some problems. And it's this last one I want you to keep in mind tonight as we read our passage. The irony of finding a priceless treasure and treating it as if it was something absolutely worthless. So reading our, our passage today in Matthew 27, starting in verse 35, we come to God's, God's word which says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saves others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him, come now, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. By way of reminder, as our passage starts, at this point in time, Jesus has been awake for over 24 hours, having spent all of Thursday night in deep prayer, crying out to the Father for deliverance from the wrath to come, if at all possible, but ultimately praying for strength to submit to the Father's will so that Christ would be the perfect sacrifice. Then he was betrayed by Judas, arrested, beaten and mocked by the Jews after a sham of a trial, 
sent to Pilate, sent to Herod, sent back to Pilate, denied by Peter, then despite Pilate finding Jesus innocent of any and all wrongdoings, he was scourged by whip, he was further mocked by the Romans, who dressed him up in fake royal garb with a crown of thorns, a soldier's cape, and a reed scepter. And then just as his wounds had begun to heal against that soldier's cape, they ripped it off of him, tearing his wounds open again. And despite Pilate's attempt to ease the priest's ego by humiliating Christ so publicly like this, they insisted that Barabbas be set free and Christ be crucified, forced to carry the very cross that had most likely been set aside for Barabbas. Then, in about the third hour of the day, that's about 9 a.m., Friday morning on the day of preparation for the Passover, Christ is brought to Golgotha. From here, all the gospel accounts oddly skip over the actual process of crucifixion. There's no discussion going on about how he was tied or perhaps even had to be held down by the Roman soldiers. There's no discussion about how he would have felt as the Romans picked up the hammer and nail knowing what's coming. There's no description of how it would have felt for each blow of the hammer to pierce his hands and his wrists further and further until the nail dug into the wood. And there's no description of his cries of pain as he was lifted up on the cross that morning where he would suffer and die for the next six hours. Just a simple statement there at the beginning of verse 35, and they crucified him. It stands in stark contrast to the level of detail about the beatings and mockings that we've gotten up to this point. And it stands in stark contrast also to the the anguish we see Christ go through after the crucifixion. And it could be that there was no need to go into detail. Like the people of Jesus' time, they were well aware of what it meant to be crucified. If I tell you I'm going to drive somewhere, I don't need to tell you about the process of getting to the car, turning on the engine, putting it in gear. I might have to explain a stick shift for some of y'all, but most of us understand the broad idea of driving a car. And it's possible that's why they skip it over it in the gospel accounts. There's no need to go into it. However, I think there's a greater reason for skipping over this. And the reason is that it's not the important part of what we see happening in this passage. The important part of this passage is that Christ is being rejected by all of mankind. Who can tell me here, according to Matthew, who is present at Jesus' crucifixion? The apostles? That's right. We know from the very least that John was there from John. Uh, and we can infer that Peter was probably there from Acts when he says that he was a witness to these events. Who else? Yes, you, sir. Mary, his mother. We know there are three Marys there, again from John. Who else? Someone from this side. I haven't seen any hands on this side. I'm just going to call someone. No? Molly, hair adjustment, or raised hand? Take, take a guess. It's real easy. Someone had to crucify him. Who was there? The priests were there? Yeah. Avery, uh, Avery. Sorry, Riley. Riley. Okay, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Who else? The Roman soldiers. Absolutely. And the crowd. There's one more person I can think of in this passage. What do you think? Yes, Fox? The other two criminals, exactly. Very good. So, we see the Romans were there. The soldiers were there. We see the criminals were there on either side of Jesus. Uh, the priests, obviously, yes. 
and John, we went over the three Marys, and John himself, and probably Peter. But there was other people there that day. There was the people coming into Jerusalem. At the cross, we see a representation of Jews and Gentiles. We see all classes represented there, from the highest level of the Sanhedrin, who was there in their great triumph of having finally killed Christ, all the way down to the most humble person. We see Roman soldiers, we see depraved criminals, and we see the average person just walking by on their way to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. Bless you. All of mankind was present at the cross that day. Isaiah 53, 6 makes this quite clear. I mean, it, it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. For the Lord had caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We were all represented at the cross. And so while it is good and it's appropriate for us to talk about what's involved in the crucifixion process, since that's not a normal part of our day-to-day life anymore, thank goodness, uh, the important part of the passage that we need to focus on are the people who are present at the cross and the judgments being displayed at the cross. So that is going to be our focus this morning. And for those taking notes, our title this evening is going to be The Judgments at the Cross. The Judgments at the Cross. And our theme for the passage is that God's love is never so richly displayed as when Christ's sovereignty was never so fully rejected. I'll say that again because I know it's a a bit of a brain twister there. God's love is never so richly displayed as when Christ's sovereignty was never so fully rejected. And we're going to see this across two broad sections. In part one, we're going to see man's judgment on God. We'll see in verses 35 to 37, the Romans' judgment of Christ. In verses 38 to 40, we'll see the people's judgment of Christ. And in verses 41 to 44, we'll see the priest's judgment of Christ. However, man's judgment on God is only what we see on the surface level of reading this text. When we look a little bit deeper, we see that there's a much, much more important thing happening in our text tonight. And that's what we're going to go over in part two, and that's God's judgment on man. So we'll look at the passage again and consider what is truly happening at the cross. So let's look again at the Roman judgment of Christ. This is verses 35 to 37. Reading God's word, it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, we've already gone over the crucifixion process itself, but what are these indi- or who are these individuals that were dividing up Christ's gar- garments there? Who are these individuals? The Roman soldiers. Very good. Uh, John 19.23 tells us specifically that these were four Roman soldiers. And like all such soldiers, they would have been single men with no familial attachments. It's quite possible that they were there beating and mocking Jesus earlier in the day when he was at Pilate's trial. But regardless, these four men had the job of keeping watch over those being crucified. One, to make sure they died. And two, to make sure that no one came to their rescue. 
And based on what we know historically of an average Roman soldier, and on the way we see them participating in the mocking of Jesus, we know that these Roman soldiers, these four men, were crude, they were irreverent, and they were cruel men who delighted in the suffering of those on the crosses. Their perks, if you could call it that, of this assignment was that they were allowed to have anything the condemned still had on them at this point, which was basically their clothing at this point. They would have gone through trial, they would have been in jail, and all they had on them was their clothing on their backs. Because if being crucified wasn't humiliating enough, the Roman soldiers would strip the condemned and crucify them completely naked. And then to add further insult, they would stand before the one whose clothing they had just stole and rip it to pieces between the four of them, each one getting an equal amount. And then they'd be able to take the cloth and be able to get it whatever amount of money they could. But here we see that for Christ, while they did divide his outer garments that way, Matthew tells us that for his inner garment, his tunic, they cast lots. And the reason for this, we're told, is that, uh, according to John's account, is that his, his tunic was cast of a single weave. Uh, it was weave woven from one piece from top to bottom. And this was a very technical ability, whoever, whoever did it. It was hard. As a result, it was worth more money. So the, the Romans there decided instead of cutting into four pieces and getting pennies on the dollar, that it was better for one person to win big. As one final insult, the Romans placed a charge over Jesus' head that is the explanation of what crime he had committed that was worthy of being crucified, that demanded even crucifixion. And the, re- the, the charge they put above Jesus was, it was because he was the king of the Jews. And John's account further tells us that this, was, this charge was written three times, once in Aramaic, once in Latin, and once in Greek. For the purpose of making sure that everyone who saw Jesus on the cross that day would know that this was why he was being crucified. I want you to remember that last week, Alejandro went over uh, Pilate. He talked about how Pilate was no fool. That he understood completely the Jewish people, they didn't actually care that Jesus was claiming to be king over Caesar. Like the Jewish people, they would have supported anyone who was stirring up trouble at this time. They didn't like Roman rule. They would have been glad to have someone trying to be an insurrectionist. And so, Pilate wrote this probably to prod back a little bit at, at the Jewish people. To say, yes, I recognize what's going on here. I'm not going to stop it. But I recognize what you're doing. And so he put this as a bit of a tongue-in-cheek rebuke against them. And yet at the same time, this charge placed against Jesus is the absolute truth for why Jesus was being crucified by mankind that day. Jesus had fully displayed himself as king that week as he rode in Jerusalem, as he cleared out the money changers from the temple, and rebuked the leaders for their false worship. And mankind rejected his rule and authority, choosing to kill him rather than submit to him. Jesus' crime, from man's perspective, was that he was truly their king. For the Romans there that day, though, they ultimately didn't care about Jesus' authority. Despite knowing Jesus was innocent, they were apathetic. That means they didn't care, one way or the other, about Jesus' message, and they shoveled him off to be murdered. So that's the Romans' judgment on Christ. What do we see in the people's judgment of Christ? And this is in verses 38 to 40. 
You see, it says that at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the the cross. And then we're going to include verse 44 in this, which further reads, And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So we see two groups of of kind of, these are the people responses. The first group is the pair of robbers being crucified on either side of Jesus. And, and I don't know about you, but when I, when I read the word robber, I get like this mental picture in my head, right? I, I get the guy who's wearing the black mask across his eyes, and he has the black and white shirt, and like a little money bag, and he's tiptoeing, he's putting like, you know, diamonds in there in a museum or something. That's kind of the mental picture I get when I, when I think robber. Like, this is someone, he, he's doing quote-unquote nonviolent crimes, he's just robbing from museums and stuff. But the word used here in the Bible is actually being used to describe like a highwayman. That, that's someone like Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those who lie in wait for the blood of innocent people, they would attack them, they'd kill them, or leave them for dead at the very least and rob them. It was also used as a violent insurrectionist. In fact, it's, it's quite possible that these two men were part of Barabbas' gang and were surprised to find a man that they might have very well known as a healer, perhaps even a rabbi, being crucified with them instead of their leader. Regardless of if they knew Barabbas or if they were just two other insurgents, we see that while listening to the mockery being hurled at Christ by the people passing by in the crowd, they pick up the chant and join in. The second group of people mentioned in these verses are the passerbys. Since this was the day of preparation for the Passover, these would have been people who lived outside of Jerusalem and were coming in to observe the Passover, as they'd been instructed to in the Old Testament. The historian Josephus, he records that at the Passover time, that the population of Jerusalem, which was usually usually around 80,000 people, would swell up to close to 3 million people. However, take that with a grain of salt, uh, Josephus was kind of well-known for exaggerating numbers. Uh, more conservative historians say that it probably would see maybe 120,000 people come into the city that day. I want you to think about this because many of them, they were probably already in the city. Like they had places safe, family to be with. They would have got a hotel or an inn, as they would call it back then. They would have been in the city. But a lot of these people would have been staying in the surrounding area, places like Bethany, like Jesus was. And so as we think about it, these people would have had to be coming into Jerusalem that day. Now maybe there are some who come in from another gate, but many of them would have walked right past Jesus. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that tens of thousands of people walked past Jesus that day as they went into Jerusalem to observe the Passover, or excuse me, observe the preparation for the Passover. Many of these same people undoubtedly would have been those who had seen him less than a week prior riding into Jerusalem and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But today, as they see Jesus on the cross, the Bible tells us they're wagging their heads at him. And, and that's kind of an old phrase. I don't, I don't know if any of you maybe have personally seen this, uh, but have you ever seen your parents do that? Just a, they, they walk into the room, and they see you're fighting with your sibling again. Like, 
I'm sure, that, I'm sure this never happens to me, but it, me growing up, like, my parents would come in, they'd be like, Matthew, knock it off. And, you know, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stop, uh, I'll stop pushing on my sister. And then they leave the room and I, I push on them. It's your fault, Emily. And they come right back in, Matthew. And they just, you know, they just wag their head. What are we going to do with you? Or maybe, maybe you're, you're uh, kinder than I am, and your parents just walk into your room, and they see you scrolling on your phone, and there's just clothing everywhere, and your, your homework's undone, and they just wag their heads. They're so disappointed. It's not fun, is it, right? Like, like whenever your parents do that, you just, oh, man, I, I've disappointed them again. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe you have never experienced it yourself. Maybe you're all less of a disappointment to your parents than I like, but I, I saw this a lot. <laughs> We know we've greatly disappointed him. Well, here in Matthew, we see that not only are they disappointed in Jesus' ministry, and they wag their heads at him, but they actually mock him, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Now, does that mockery sound familiar to anyone? Yeah. Where have you heard it before? Close? You're very close. You're on the right track. Ooh, okay. So, eventually mentioned Jesus' temptation in the desert. I had written down that these mockings of Jesus mirror uh, Satan's temptations. We see him. We see them, you know, threatening Jesus' life. Oh, we care about your life. You should do this. We see them trying to tempt him to disobey God. Uh, we see him promising worship in exchange for disobedience. However, I didn't include that because I didn't have time to go over it. But I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. Uh, but these specific words have been said once this day already, before Jesus was on the cross. When was that? You're close. It was during the first trial with the Sanhedrin. They're trying to find some accusation to bring against Jesus. And they couldn't find anything to stick. Every, all the false witnesses, they couldn't get two people to make the same lie. And you'd think that would be pretty easy, right? Like, hey, I just heard this person lie this way. I'm just going to say the exact same lie. Like, they couldn't pull it off. And finally, they got one person to say that they heard Jesus say, I am able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. Which was an almost quote of John 2.19 which was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He comes again for the Passover, and it's the first time he drives out the money changers from the temple. And after this exchange, the Jews who were there demanded a sign from Jesus, and his response was, destroy this temple, speaking his body, and in three days I will rise it up. But what's interesting about the fact that the passerbys are saying this is that the discussion of Jesus' trial had to have already gone outside the walls of Jerusalem. That Jesus kidnapped in the middle, arrested in the middle of the night, put on a sham of a trial. The news of that sham of a trial had to already spread like wildfire. Such that people coming in a few hours later, between 9 and 12 in the morning, had heard this report against Jesus and were using it to insult him. I want you to consider the insanity of the statement they are making, saying, uh, mocking him, 
to come down from the cross if he is really the Son of God. As the Son of God, is there any way that he would have been on the cross in the first place if it had not been the Father's will? No. No. As the Son of God, like think about what they're saying. They say, hey, if you're the Son of God, come off the cross. And what they should have been thinking is, if he's the Son of God, there's no reason for him to be up there unless God has ordained it. And so what they are trying to say, say to him is, if you are the Son of God, disobey the Father, and then we'll believe in you. Of course, none of the people there that day had this in their minds. They didn't really care if he was the Son of God or not. They didn't really care if he came off the cross or not. Ultimately, the issue going on here is that they were disenchanted from the ministry of God and distracted by the worldly concerns around them. For less than a week before, they shouted, Hosanna, as Jesus rode in Jerusalem when they thought they were getting an earthly king to overthrow the Roman government and set up their own kingdom where they could live basically without changing a single thing in their lives. Now when they saw the true reason Christ had come to earth to die in our place and restore a right relationship between us and the Father, they had absolutely no interest in him. They have become disenchanted or dissatisfied with Jesus' ministry, and they're distracted pursuing after the worldly affairs of their lives, and so they pass Jesus by. Which brings us to the last human group passing judgment that day, and that's the priests and the leaders. And this is in verses 41 to 43, which says, In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saves others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him... Now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, and let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. If the Romans were apathetic to Christ's ministry, and the general masses were disenchanted and distracted, the only thing I can use to describe the priests and the leaders is that they were hostile against God. And yet their mocking reveals much about their actual mindset. I want you to notice in verse 42, what's the first thing they say? Verse 42, someone look down and read to me. That's the very first part of it. Go ahead, Ian. That right there. He saved others. They fully acknowledge that they knew Christ had saved others. And no doubt they were considering the many people that Jesus was undoubtedly healing during this week where he was spending time in the temple teaching. They probably were even thinking about Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they wanted to kill again because he was too much of a distraction from their authority. Maybe they even were thinking way back for the past three years about all the reports that had come in about this amazing rabbi who came teaching things no one had ever heard before with authority and was healing the sick, causing the blind to see, the lame to walk, casting out demons. No matter which of these things were going through their mind, the end result is the same. With their own mouths, they confess that Jesus was at the very least a mighty prophet of God. And if you'll allow me just a tiny bit of speculation, I would insist that they believed Jesus was in fact the Son of God. 
You see, back in Matthew 21, Jesus gives the parable of the vine growers. Remember, a man sets up a, a vineyard, and he rents it out to some people. And at the due course of time, after the harvest, he says, I'm going to go and get my share. And he sends out a servant, and they beat the servant. So he sends out another servant, and they beat him too. And he sends out a group of them. Some they beat, some they kill. And finally, the man says, I will send my own son, for surely they will respect him. At the end of this parable in Matthew 21, verse 38, we read that when the vine growers saw the son, they, had, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And then dropping down to verse 45, it says, And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Jesus' charge against the current leaders was that they knew that the heir had come, and they sought to kill him so they could seize God's inheritance. And we see this exact truth played out in John eleven forty seven. That's where they see Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and they, they say, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs if, if we let him go on like this. All men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they reject God's authority and seek to kill the heir because they knew who God was and they actively hated him for it. So these are the three judgments on God from man displayed at the cross. We see that there are those who reject his methods out of just pure apathy. They don't care. We see that there are those who are disenchanted with the message. They don't like what Jesus has come to do or distracted. They want to pursue the worldly pleasures instead. We see that there are those who are openly hostile against him. And these are the people Jesus warned his disciples about in John 15, 20, saying, Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And this is the important part in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. You see, where before they could sin in ignorance, now their sin has been brought to light. They are without excuse, and they hate God for removing their ignorance, for such is their love of their sin. But there is one more extremely important part of this passage. At the cross, there is one more judgment being carried out, and it ultimately is the only judgment that really mattered that day. That is God's judgment on man. See, on Sunday... We're going to see the completion of God's judgment at the cross and the result of Christ's death. But this passage demonstrates the absolute and vital need we had of the cross in the first place. From criminal to priest, from Jew to Greek, from poor to wealthy, every possible kind of the person, or every type of person was there that day committing treason against the king of creation. And I told you at the very beginning, beginning of the lesson, I want you to keep this mental picture in, in your mind about the Australians during their gold rush. They found gold, and they thought it was fool's gold, and they treated something priceless as mundane. 
here at the cross, we have the greatest of all ironies ever recorded where someone treated a priceless treasure as if it was worthless dross. Barabbas, the man who had committed treason trying to overthrow the Roman government, was set free so that mankind could commit treason against God. What unequaled irony is this? That with their every mocking cry against Jesus, they were adding to his burden the wrath of God that he was required to bear on our sake. Even more ironic, the priests are mocking him by quoting Psalm 22. And and honestly, guys, this alone is proof that they knew that he was the Son of God. Go ahead and turn real quick to Psalm 22. We're not going to read this whole psalm, but I highly recommend sometime this week you make time to read this psalm. As I was preparing for this lesson, I did a very, very quick surface-level reading of it. And by doing this, I counted seven direct fulfillments that Psalm 22 has about our passage right now. This isn't counting everything that came before. This isn't counting what's going to happen for the rest of Jesus' crucifixion. This is just Matthew 27, verses 35 to 44. Seven direct fulfillments. And this is extremely important because I feel like there's a tendency among Christians even to wonder, why the cross? Like, like God is all-powerful, right? God is all-powerful, right? Look up real quick, guys. Everyone up here. Is God all-powerful? Is God the judge? Why the cross then? Like, couldn't God have chosen some other method? Like, some other disciplinary action? Something less painful, less brutal against Christ? I'm going to answer it's a rhetorical question, but thank you. So why the cross? In fact, there's a very popular pastor. There was when I was in college, one of the times I was in college. About 15 years ago, there's a man named Rob Bell, and he came out with a book called Love Wins. And I don't think he was the first person to use this phrase. I know he wasn't the last, but he describes... God pouring out his wrath on Jesus as cosmic child abuse. Saying, it is insanity to punish the one who did no wrong for the sins we commit. And that anyone who believes that Christ's death death was substitutionary believes that God is some sort of cosmic child abuser. And that ultimately, God just loves us so much that he can't stay mad at us for too long, and we get to go to heaven in the end. As we consider the judgment of God that he is pouring out on the cross, we must understand the depravity of our representatives who were there that day mocking him. I want you to see how perfectly Psalm 22 outlined the death of Christ and how the priests intentionally quoted it to make sure he knew their utter rejection of God. And we're going to go through this quickly, guys. But in Matthew 27, 35, we're told they crucified him. Psalm 22, 14, it says, All my bones are out of joint. In verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet. Both these statements exactly describing the kind of death Jesus would have on the cross. Again, Matthew 27, 35, we're told that they divided his garments. Psalm 22, 18, 
they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 17 also, Psalm 22, it says, I can count all my bones, indicating that he'd be naked for all to see every bit of him. Matthew 27, 36, it says, and they watched over him. Psalm 27, 17, they look, they stare at me. Matthew 27, 38, his two robbers were crucified him, one on his right, one on his left. Psalm 22, 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. Psalm 27, 39, they hurled abuse at me. Psalm 20, or excuse me, Matthew 27, 39, they hurl abuse at me, at him. Psalm 22, 7 through 8, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lips, they wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Guys, listen up. This is vitally important. If you hear nothing else I said today, hear this. It was necessary for God to pour his wrath out on Christ at the cross, because if you had been there, or if I had been there, we too would have been mocking him for dying for our sins. The priests fully understood the parallels that was happening between Jesus on the cross that day and Psalm 22. They understood Scripture was being fulfilled in front of their eyes, and they quoted back to him to mock him. They are mad at him because they can no longer sin in ignorance. In closing, I have just one question for you. And that is, do you see yourself currently represented at the cross today? If we're in Christ, then we should all see ourselves in one of these groups of people. The apathetic, the distracted, the openly hostile. At one point in time, as a Christian, we were all there before we came to Christ, right? But my question is, how many are you here right now who have yet to place your faith in Christ and see yourself in one of the people, people groups? How many of you are you here today, bored out of your mind, not caring about the message of Christ? The Romans felt the same way, guys. How many of you are here today slamming your Bible shut as soon as I say in closing because you can't wait to get out of this part of youth group so you can go have snacks, so you can go fellowship with your friends, so you can go play games, whatever happens next. Just so you can forget this message before your parents even pick you up. How many of you are here today who know the truth of God, that you are a sinner condemned to hell And it's only the death of Christ on the cross purchasing our forgiveness that can save you, and you hate God for it. For a long time, I was that last one. I hated God for so long, guys. When I was nine, my best friend died. And I hated God for it. Because I knew it was his will. I didn't care that his testimony was read to a group of young men, and many, many there came to believe in faith in Christ. I hated God. And my hatred drove me to despair. It drove me to self-harm. But God, those are my two most favorite words in all of Scripture. From Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. 
even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with him. I hated him, but God loved me. And out of my rebellion, drew me to himself. We're going to pray now, guys. But if there's anyone here who recognizes that they are not in God, who recognizes that they are apathetic to this message, or just interested, distracted, or openly hostile, please grab one of, one of our leaders. Come talk to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we are sinners. Apart from you, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. Apart from you, we would have no hope of ever meeting your perfect standard. God, we thank you that at the cross, as mankind thought it was judging you and rejecting you and rejoicing at your pain and suffering, we thank you that you were in fact judging us and that you found us completely incapable of bearing your wrath. And in love, you gave us Christ at the cross. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who does not know you, that you would take away from them their heart of stone that rejects you and give them a heart of flesh to love you and serve you for all their lives. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in your Son's most precious name.